y'all. What is it they say? A family that lasts together stays together. I think it's actually eats together, stays together. But I think there's something about laughing as a family. Like, you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, oh, Jesus, we need to laugh more. We can be a little serious around here, can't we? Do y'all ever feel that way? Like, hmm, let's be holy. And I wonder if, like, God snickers a little, like, um, y'all. That's cute. Um, (laughs) Holy Spirit, I thank you for worship. I thank you that worship is war and that we don't stop when we're worshiping and singing to you and when we're eating of your word. That both of those are part of our desire to reach into you and to say more, Lord, more. Father, I pray that you would speak that your children are listening. We're hungry. A tiny pre-made niblet and juice sip is not enough. It is symbolic of what was poured out for us. And so we take it and we say thank you. Thank you for the, your blood. Thank you for your body poured out for us. And we say we want so much more. Amen. So I was thinking about symbols, and when I was in high school, I had this high school English teacher who was the same English teacher that my father had, which is always interesting um, to be in a place where your grandmother taught, your father went to school. I could do nothing without having somebody give me what we would, the evil eye and the eyebrow would go up as you're being watched. It was, it was just all the time. But this particular teacher, she was a little rebellious at the same time. She enjoyed the, the 70s and her, her free-spirited days, and those for her had never ended. And so her classroom was just a class of chaos, organized chaos, and so much fun. I'm not sure in the long run how much learning we really learned in some ways, but there are a few things that have stuck with me. And one was her overt use of teaching us to do what she called deep reading and um, looking for symbolism and other types of things in literature. And so we would sit for hours tearing things apart and just digging through it, much like we do in Bible study. I had no idea that this woman was teaching me on nearly a seminary level how to do exegesis Bible study in a little western northern New Mexico town. And the woman may have, I mean might have been taking something on the side at times. But um, we are streaming, I don't wanna say too much. But there is a chance that she was, her heightened sense of excitement may have been through other means. But she's sitting there teaching this with her passion for us learning to look for the deeper meaning between every word, every sentence, the shadows across somebody's face, the descriptives. And, And all of this was fascinating to me. I mean, I loved it, but I didn't fully understand how the Lord was laying some groundwork for me when I would then start to study the word at a deeper level when I got older and how he would show me those same things. The symbols through the Old Testament to the New do not end in part like, oh, this is the old symbol and we're done with it, boom, New Testament. And I have to tell you, I've been at a number of churches over the years that primarily taught out of the New Testament. There wasn't as much, oh, the Old Testament is dry, it's boring, it's whatever. And a number of years ago, I read this book, I think it was from K. Arthur, um, and I can't think of the name of it. I mean, this was like 25 years ago. She wrote this book and it was about the Old 
Testament, and it was an allegory, like a symbolic writing of this woman. And, and it just made me hungry for the Old Testament. Like I read this story, and it was a fictionalized version, and, and so I started reading, and now I have to tell you, I love the Old Testament. I mean, it's like the steak. You just chew on it, and there's just so much in every little tiny square inch. And then you move into the New Testament, and it's just, it's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, right? And so Brad was talking about that last week, and he kind of laid this groundwork for us to understand that last week there was the symbol made of stone in the Old Testament. There was a symbol of the tabernacle, which was cloth, to the, no, yes, to, to the, from the tabernacle to the temple, to the temple, which was made of stone. And there was this idea that within both of those, there was the holy of holies, the place that, that the life source rested for all of the area. And there was a place for sacrifice, there's a place for the, the, the blood to run, and a place for the purification water to sit. And, and all of these things had this purpose in order to create a place that people could come and participate with a one God, one, one God, to seek healing and fulfillment and focus and provision and, and all the stuff that the people groups around them didn't do that at all. All the people groups around them were people that followed many gods. And so you would have your god of the wheat and you would have your god of, of fertility and you'd have the sun god and, and there were different things that went to all of that. And the Lord said, I want to create a people that understand the one so there was the one place to worship, the one. He had to pull people back in. Does it make sense? So Brad talked about that last week. He removing a heart of stone and giving the heart of flesh. But there still was the one, right? Jesus became symbolic of the one, the one like the one temple. So in Jesus, a new era of God's presence has started. In the Old Testament, God was symbolically represented. I'm going over this really fast because I think I missed something. Do you guys have handouts, number one? Did y'all get them? And number two, do you have mark uh, markers? Who do I usually teach? <laughs> do y'all have pens or pencils? If you need something, I'm sure Chuck probably has something in his backpack he'll share with you. He'll look around. <laughs> Maybe not. Um... But the Old Testament ends with the promise of a new way of hosting God's presence. So when we jump into the beginning of the New Testament, we are about 400 years after this promise was made. And now we look at 400 years and we're like, oh my word, that was so, that's so long. I mean, our country wasn't around 400 years ago. Like your family line, you probably don't even know what your family line was 400 years ago unless you're Betsy Taylor. And so the rest of us probably have no idea. I bet you she probably does she. I mean, yeah, I'm getting nods. She probably knows, but the rest of us probably have no idea where we came from 400 years ago. But the people of God did. And they had been standing on promises for 400 years, but some things had gotten a little slippery. This reminds me of us right now a little bit. 400 years after the promise, Palestine is a different place. A Roman province, heavily cosmopolitan, meaning cities, right? People are kind of moving into city life. Things are changing. The temple is still standing, but remember, it's not the original temple, right? Like it had come down, been rebuilt, a little smaller, not quite as like lustry as the first one was. But even religion is somewhat fractured 
this so strikes me as today for us. So you had the Pharisees who were like, this is how we're going to do it. There's five million, million laws. You better have them all memorized. Then you have the Sadducees who had their own hangups. And then you had the Zealots who were like, I'll do anything. I'll go as far. I mean, they were just like on fire. I mean, we want to be a modern zealot in some ways, especially Chuck. I mean, he just, he flies for that. I'm kidding. But there's like this sense of like wanting to give it all, wanting to run. But then in their heart, if you didn't do just like them, you were wrong. So it was like not an understanding of grace, not this under. And then you just had all these different people groups who were like, we're going to push in. And then you had people who were going to pull out and we're going to completely isolate and live out in the desert and do our own thing. And it had just this... The idea had become a very big of a separation, these just people groups, but they all had to come back to the temple to worship. So there was a rub when they all came back to the temple, right? Because there was this hard spot when they had to come back there. Just think if, if we had all of our denominations and all the splits, but we really all came back to one church to worship. That'd be hard, right? Now, right now, we are in our church. King's Church is here, and, and Southland's going on, and they're having services. And we understand from where we stand now that it's the body of Christ. At least, I hope you understand that with me. That one of the things that is King's Church leadership, we don't ever want to build a mountain for ourselves. We want to be servants for others. So in our own body here in this building, there's three churches that share this room on any given weekend. And part of that is because we believe it's the body of Christ as a whole coming together. So we bless and we thank our brothers and sisters who are leading in churches that don't look and don't sound like us, but that point to Jesus. But these people were like not doing quite that, but they all needed to come back to the temple because that was where they, their foundation was. So then we're gonna jump in today and we are gonna be all over the book of Luke but before we get to Luke, we're actually going to read some in John. So you can flip to me with John 2, and I'll get there in just a second. But number one on your thing right there, and I don't think we made, no, we didn't. Good luck. I'll try to say it slow and multiple times. In Jesus, the temple is both replaced and fulfilled. In Jesus, the temple is both replaced and fulfilled. Into this world of a little bit of chaos, 400 years of wandering, the church is being splintered, the people of God are splintered, Jesus steps in. And then the gospel writer Luke introduces him not just as another one of Israel's spiritual giants, that is what sets us apart from one of some of our human brothers and sisters who see Jesus as a great prophet. We're not going to see Jesus as a great prophet. Luke introduces him as the prophetically significant individual in Israel's story. There's a distinct difference here. He is fulfilling prophetic history. The prophet, the prophet, my tongue. He's fulfilling what has been prophetically said in the Old Testament, but he's not just another prophet, another great teacher. He's not. He's so much more. So we're just going to dig into Luke today. But first, let's start off with John, okay? I want to read John 2. We're going to jump there. Let's see here. I did stick some tabs in here just because. But of course, it's easier, I think, just to flip, Okay. 
In January or so, the Lord told Sasha and I to teach through John in our Embrace group, which is a women's group um, that has has been meeting here for a number of years. And we spent four months in John. I think I said this last week. It was the slowest I think I've ever moved through a book like that. Um, and at times I just thought, oh my word, can we just like move on? Because, and, I, and then the Lord would be like, no, I... You're feeling that, but I'm actually allowing you some maybe holy irritation here while you sit, because there's things I want you to get. There's things I want you to get. And, and I don't think I'll ever look at John the same way again. Jumping back to Luke really fast. We have three characters that we see that I want us to jump out. And as we're reading in John, I want us to think as John and Luke kind of go together, because they're telling the same story in different ways often. But in Luke, we're going to pick three characters out that we have lots of little minor characters, but three main characters. One is Jesus, of course. We're pointing everything back to him right now. The second one is the Holy Spirit. And um, I don't have Brad's Bible right now because currently our main Bibles look very differently, different. But in the past, we've often had Bibles that we bought together. So they looked just alike. And, um, and so we would have the same Bible. And one of the ways I knew that I was not carrying my Bible is that it was probably in better condition than mine. And then when I flipped through it, there are little drawings all through his Bible. And there are certain books of the Bible that there's tons of little tiny drawings on the edges. And one of those is a little flame. And I have practiced and practiced and tried to figure out how he does that with a pencil, this little like flame symbol. I mean, he does it in like a split second and it looks beautiful, almost like a tulip with like a little flame. And I can't get it down. I mean, I've tried because I'm like, I just want to stamp. But he, he, everywhere there's the Holy Spirit is mentioned in his word when he's reading, he puts this little flame symbol. And so to understand how many times the Holy Spirit is mentioned in some books of the Bible, it's fascinating to flip through his version because you see it visually. Like, oh my word. But it's fascinating to mark that if you ever have a chance. But when you're going back through to just mark how often the Holy Spirit is brought, especially in this first part of Luke, it's just all over the place. The Holy Spirit is there all over the place before Pentecost happens. Like you're going to see that today. And then we're going to talk about the temple, because although Jesus is here and we're part of this, remember, he is not here to replace fully until we see this in just a second what happens in Luke. He is also here to fulfill. Does that make sense? To fulfill. So it's a meaningful symbol, and it's essential that this symbol is functioning correctly for it to have a fulfillment of it. All right? Because he came to replace it, not with because it was just dirty and needed to be replacing. He came to replace it because he came to fulfill the idea of what the temple first represented as being the resting place for the Holy Spirit, to be this place that the sovereign Lord could be among his people. Do you remember last week when, when Brad mentioned that the setup when they would, that there were different tribes, almost looking like a cross on the different sides of the temple or on the tabernacle and they'd move, they actually had places that looked like the cross and it was the center. So the tabernacle, when they would move it and set it up, um, it would be in the center of the people. And the Lord has always had a heart to walk in the Garden of Eden among his people, to have his presence among his people. And so we needed a functioning tab temple at that point where it was doing the right things in order to be, have a fulfillment made. Now we jump to John. Thank you. I had to get all that there first. First, we have the wedding of Cana. 
I love that story. Go back, read it. You know this story. It's his very first public set of, of um, declarations of who he is through his actions. But then if we get to John 2, 12, we're going to start reading there. I think it's probably up behind me. I am reading in the um, English Standard Version. After he went down to Capernaum, so after the wedding of Canaan, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. So they just, before they went home, they took a little side trip. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, again, what he's about to do is not necessarily that this was completely wrong, by the way, which is something that my brain didn't always understand. I thought he came in and threw everybody out because it was just a mess. But what he's doing is there's a two layers here. Because if you were traveling in like you had to, because to come do sacrifices, you had to travel to this single church building. Like I mentioned earlier, one place, one temple, you had to come to it to do your sacrifice. And so it might be a little impossible for you to travel several days worth of a journey with your oxen or with your, your um, lamb or your sheep or your pigeons. It might be, make more sense for you to take your money and to come there and then to buy the oxen that was there. Does that make sense? It's like just a logistical thing. It wasn't actually sinful to do this. And many people would have different types of money and they would come in and they would need to exchange their currency for another currency in order to buy the correct animal. Does this make sense? So on a base level, what was happening was the functioning so that the temple could happen. The roles of the temple could happen. In a church today, we have people who show up early to practice worship and to set up and to make coffee and, and to get the children's stuff ready. And those are needed things that make our church run. Does it make sense? So we have a lot of volunteers on any given Sunday doing that. But is that the purpose for which we come together on a Sunday morning? It's not. So there were things that were happening that were the functioning parts of it, but it wasn't the purpose for which it was. And in that, people had become a little lazy. There was gossip. There was cheating. There was trying to one-up. I think from this, maybe there was probably selling, hey, you need your perfect lamb. How about this lamb? He only has three legs, but I'll strike you a really good deal. You know, there's stuff going on that happens every time you get humans together for a given period of time without the holy presence of the Holy Spirit, right? There's just stuff going on. So he comes in, and 14, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple. Now, the last time that I sat down to make a whip of cords, it took me about, have y'all ever made a whip of cords? That just, it doesn't happen. First, you have to find the rope, and then you have to make, this is purposeful. This isn't him just coming in and losing his temper and getting, I mean, he walks in and looks, and he was like, there's something wrong here, and I need to right this situation, but I want to use this as an example. I want people to see and to hear that this happened on this day. Put this down, this happened here. And so he makes, he braids a whip of cords, and then he drives them out. It was a purposeful act. It had to have taken some time to do that, I guess. 
He drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. Well, isn't that the stuff you need to be able to do the sacrifices? He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. I love this part right here. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. So much of what he was doing was purposefully to start laying the groundwork for the future. The people would know who he was. The people would understand what he was about to do. So when the Jews said to him, what sign do you have to show us these things? Jesus answered and said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But what? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Listen, let's jump to 20, to, I don't think I have it up there, but 22, just really fast. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what that he had said this, and they believed. He was doing so much of this already for the disciples to have groundwork for in the future, for them to remember. Do you remember back when Jesus like lost his mind and said really weird things that we had no idea about? Oh, Yeah. He was telling us about that for this day. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. How often do I need to go back to the Lord and confess, Lord, I'm not sure I believe your scripture. When I believe something, my actions are different. And he was looking for people who would believe the scripture, that wouldn't cheat, wouldn't gossip, wouldn't argue, wouldn't be out for their own good. So he was cleansing the temple to make sure people understood that he needed to cleanse the temple, that he was the cleansed temple. It couldn't just be any person who had zeal for the Lord that was hung up on a cross and fulfillment of scripture. It couldn't be. Nobody else could fulfill the scripture in this way. John 11, let's jump there really fast. 45. Please. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did. Now, do you remember what happened here? My other favorite set of scriptures, I think. Lazarus had just been raised from the dead. Great things had happened. This man who was not only dead, but he was dead and he was stinky. And he had been in there for how many days? Extra points. This dude is not looking pretty. And he comes up out of the grave and walks his way out, okay? This was cool. This is big news. This man is really doing the things that the Messiah can do, all right? So many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. I would hope that I, if I had seen this stuff, I would believe in him. But this next part gives me a little bit of that fear of the Lord here on my own assumptions in my life in areas where I prejudge stuff. Right here it says, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. 
So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what do we do? For this man performs many signs, right here. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. I I would hope so. He's doing what they can't do. He's fulfilling scripture. He's doing these wonderful things, but their mind is still stuck in this old temple model of of self-fulfilling blah. That's a technical term. Y'all are getting really serious here. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take both our place and our nation. Do you hear that right there? The Romans will come. It's like, dude, if the people believe in him, he's just going to upset the whole cart, and then we're going to get in trouble. We're going to get in trouble. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, and he didn't even know what he was saying, poor dude, you know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In his own heart, I believe, like, he's probably saying this out of such a selfish zone of his heart. Like, we put him up, he dies, we all live. Ooh, but that's the point of the scripture, is the fact that one man could die and fulfill the scripture so that all could live. But he just didn't even get it. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but to be gathered into the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Things started out, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, and in that way, signs his own death warrant. From that point on, plans were made to kill Jesus. So Jesus, the present shifts from the old temple to the new, and he wanted his his disciples to see the need for that. So the disciples were at each of these points to see, oh, look, he's fulfilling scripture. Things are happening again and again. And in so much of this, the Holy Spirit is moving in the background, but I want us to actually understand how much the Holy Spirit is moving in the background. There's a reason for I'm going through all of this. You know, I've been to a lot of churches that teach on the infilling of the Holy Spirit, and they activate filling of the Holy Spirit, and I love that. I have no problem with it, but sometimes, and you've heard me say it before, and I'm going to say it again, that we don't know our own theology. We don't know why we believe something. We don't know why something could be true, and we haven't really eaten enough, wrestled it out in a way to say, I believe this because of this. So I want you guys to not just take Meg's word for it, that when I look at you and I say, you can hear from the Holy Spirit for yourself. A number of months ago, somebody came to me and they said something and I, I, it kind of blew me away. And I said, wait, tell me that again. And they told it to me again. And I said, where does that come from? And they said, well, this person told me that they could hear for the Holy Spirit better than I could hear for myself. I was really angry. There are points that we all need people in our life to point us back to wisdom, point us to straighten our life out in some area. But there is never a place for any of you, any of us, 
to be told that I can hear from the Holy Spirit better than you can hear from the Holy Spirit. And the point being that the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you. I want us to be a people that stand in the gap for others and say, the Lord wants you to have eyes to see and ears to hear. And if that's something that takes activation and practice, which I believe it does at times, then we'll work on that. And I, there's some fun things that I've done in the past and fun things that we can do to, to kind of sharpen that. And oh my word, the breakthrough when you see people are like, oh, I heard it. It's the, you're right. It's amazing to see what can happen. But I don't want you to take my word for it because then you just as easily could take somebody else's word for it when they say, oh, I can hear for the Holy Spirit more for you. No, let's dig into the word because this is the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. All right. Let's jump in. We're going to be all the way through Luke really fast here. All right. Luke 3, 21 and 22. Ready? Can I say that? And I'm not even there yet. 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, when all the people were baptized, all of them, everyone that was there, they'd all been dunked. And when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying... The heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. Jesus, right there, just the 21 to 22. Chuck, I was so thankful that you mentioned that. That the idea that, well, Chuck and I have been having this happen several times recently where one of us will have a verse and the other person was in the verse that morning or one of us will be working in something and then the other person, I mean, this happens quite often for me with other people that I'm in ministry with. And this is that, that, that I, I think in the church we use this word edification. <laughs> I think we have our own lexicon sometimes. <laughs> Basically, it's encouragement that you're not crazy, right? All right. So sometimes I need some encouragement that I'm not crazy, that I'm hearing something correctly, because I also have a little bit of the fear of the Lord on, maybe a lot of the fear of the Lord on, that when I'm getting ready to speak on something, I better know this is from the Lord, because I don't want to teach y'all something stupid. Forgive me for when I have and when I do have grace. But I believe that this is, this is the heart of God here, is that he wants to rest and to remain on each of us. And that idea being that we walk differently, that we carry ourselves differently, that there's possibly a physical change in how we, we behave if we imagine, if we feel, if we knew that something was really resting on our shoulders. How would I stand differently? How do I speak differently? Sometimes we get so accustomed to something that we forget that it's there. In John, I think it actually states that it rested and remained, a resting place for the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Mm. 
I'm reading through The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with one of my daughters. And over the last several months, it's sort of that was already in her curriculum to start it. But the last several weeks, I mean, the Lord just keeps bringing up the lion motif and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe and C.S. Lewis in my heart and in my mind so much. And I think that when we forget that we should raise a, a generation of children and churchgoers who fully understand that in order to stand in the gap, the Lord has to allow us to harden in the spirit some. He wants us to know the difference between the voice of the spirit and the voice of the enemy. He wants to clarify that for us. I have a distinct feeling that Jesus knew the difference already. He knew the difference. But when I see here that Jesus was led into the desert for 40 days to hear the voice of the, of the deceiver, why am I surprised that I have battled in my own life with hearing the voice of the deceiver? Why would I judge any of you for battling in your life for hearing the voice of the deceiver? But what we need to do is sharpen our ears to hear the voice of our Savior, the voice of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus was baptized, and he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was made aware of his anointing. So Luke 4, 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering a sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That is, that is to be you as well. It is to be me as well. He was aware of his anointing mentally. He knew what he was called to do. But physically, he was also aware of it. Luke six nineteen. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and it healed them all. All the crowd sought to touch him. Luke 8, 44 to 46. I love this story. She came up from behind him. Now remember, there's crowds. Power had been going out. Many had been healed, but she came up from behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately the blood ceased, her pain, the, the, the illness in her body ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When everyone denied it, I mean, imagine this, like he was just saying, like he had been touched a ton, power was going out, all these people were healed, and he stops them and said, who touched me? I mean, everybody's like, me, 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 me. And he's looking around going, not, no. And Peter then is like, dude, I love Peter. Peter and I, I, I feel like there's a lot in my life that identifies with Peter. Peter said, master. Peter's like the master of the obvious all the time. Master, the crowds surround you and are all pressing on you. Everybody's touching you, dude. And, but Jesus said, someone touched me for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling before him, declaring the presence. I think right there, she had been battling for this. She was willing to be marked if she had to. She knew that she was not clean. 
but she was willing to put her life on the line. I mean, if we step into the Old Testament and what happened with Deer, what is his name? Uzzah, is that correct? And he like, you know, here's this thing that the, 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 the ark, thank you, the ark had slipped. And I believe, I mean, honestly, like, good dude, right? He's like, oh, I mean, which of us wouldn't go and like, if a baby was falling or something precious is falling, wouldn't jump out and touch it. And he fell dead. Like the fear of the Lord, the fear of the anointed presence of God. I mean, he just become a little too comfortable with it. And it killed him. And there's this woman who was so desperate for a touch from the Messiah that she was willing. She didn't know what would happen. Lots of people were getting healed, but she knew she was unclean. And she was willing to come forward and to say, it was me. How many of us are willing to do that on a regular basis? To say, you know what? I've been unclean. I need something here. But Jesus was aware of his anointing mentally and physically. Are you aware of it? One of the things that was really cool when we teach on, uh, on healing and talking to people about healing, sometimes people will manifest different things. And one of the things that we've seen a lot is that people's hands get really, really hot when they have a, a gift of healing, whether that's an ongoing thing or just a, for a time. And they'll get kind of wigged out by it. Like, oh, my hands are like burning hot. And we're like, then lay hands on someone and let's pray. And you kind of see really cool things kind of start to happen from that. But there's a mental preparation of understanding and a physical preparation. All right. So then he also operated in power and authority. This wasn't just oozing out of him. He's not just walking along, patting people on the head. There's power and authority. Luke 4.36. I told y'all we would just be back and forth all over. Four thirty-six, and they were all amazed and said to one another, and said to one another, "What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out." The power of the Lord was present for him to heal the sick. Lose five seventeen. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was supposed to do, and he did it with authority. But where did that come from? You know, it says that he had set aside and came down and was fully human. Sometimes in reading some of this, we can kind of forget that Jesus had decided he was a purposeful to be fully human, to submit completely to the human body. He had hunger pains, right? He ate, he slept, he rested. So where did this intentional knowledge Mentally, physically, the authority, where did that come from? Because if we are to live as Christ lived, I think this is a key spot right here. He nurtured it through the fellowship of the Father. Go over to Luke 5, 16 really fast. He was intentional about this. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. When's the last time you withdrew to a desolate place? I'm not sure what that means. I think it means like out in the desert. He stepped away from everything, and he would spend time with the Lord. He sought after his father. He sought after this. We could keep going, guys. Seriously, at some point, maybe just do what I did with John and just spend several months in Luke, because it's, it's fascinating. It's the, it's the birth story we all know. 
We all know this, but sometimes we forget what he's saying to us in our knowledge base, our familiarity. So we could also look at 3, 21 to 22, 4, 42, 6, 12, 9, 18, 9, 28, 11, 1, 21, 37, 22, 39 to 45. I'm just giving you numbers here. We're not going to read them all. But it is all throughout here that the Holy Spirit is mentioned again and again and again. Jesus had submitted himself to the Father to point the way to something else. It begins with him receiving the Holy Spirit, the dove landing on his shoulder. But his time on earth ended by him releasing this back out to all of us. It is available to every one of us. I was driving in this morning as I'm driving in and I'm thinking about symbolism and and symbols and stuff. And I'm just driving without even thinking about it. I'm kind of watching the electric lines go like this as I'm driving along. And I was thinking every one of those electric, the um, telephone poles, which is funny we call them telephone poles because, well, they're really not anymore pretty much. But the telephone poles look a whole lot like a... It looks like a cross. And on that telephone pole, which is everywhere, and we see it, and we say it's the telephone pole, is that, if you pull your phone out right now, is that the source of your power for your phone? No. Is it the source for your power for the electricity for our building? No. It's a conduit. It lifts up the wires in the air so that they can be strung across land to bring the power to our homes, right? But the cross in of itself, the telephone in and of itself, is just pointing towards something else. I know that on my property, if I go out and there's a storm and a tree falls and that, that wire that's going across the front of my property has fallen down, that in my home, my electricity won't work. It's showing me that it's coming to my home. But it is not the electricity that's there. And I think at this point, Jesus looks at his people and he says, it's better for you for me to go because I fulfilled my part. I'm the symbol. I'm the in-between that you can understand that we need this fulfillment of the true temple. And the temple needs to go from a temple of stone to a temple of flesh. And then in Pentecost to you becoming the temple. That he needed to be able to show this percept, this change across a period of time, not just all at once. It's kind of like for me, I was really grateful for nine months of pregnancy. That it didn't go from like, oh, you're pregnant and here's the baby. You know, there's oftentimes where the Lord, the world, I mean, it's the way he made us. There's times for growth and understanding. And he was preparing the world around him to see this. So in Jesus, the presence is released into the world. John 20, 19 to 23. I promise we're almost done. People starting to sweat in the back. Meg's still talking. I want you to really understand this. 19 to 23, really fast. On the evening of the day of the first of the week, the doors being locked... Read that with me out loud. The doors being, okay. Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So if you're afraid of somebody barging in, are you going to forget to lock the door? No. Now, we live on this little five-acre piece of property out fairly much out in the middle of nowhere. And we have this really big 100-pound dog. And Brinley is my, like, my BFF in dog form. 
I love this dumb dog, but y'all, it's, do you guys remember Annie's song, Dumb Dog? Like, in the musical Annie from years ago. I sing that to him fairly often on my own because he's just this big doof of a dog. But yesterday I got a little emotional about something and the minute he senses anything from mama, like he's there and like he does it to everybody that comes to our house. He sits right here and leans into you. And he's a hundred pounds, so you kind of have to like plant your feet and stand or he's going to just like timber you over because he just wants to love on you. And so he wants to be in that house. And when he thinks that there's something going on in the house that he needs to be in there for, he will find a way in the house. So many of our doorknobs have, have like chew marks because he can open doors and he's figured that out. But one of the things he's figured out is in the basement, there's some double doors. And if they don't actually have the latch at the bottom at the top of the door, so only one opens, he knows how to open those doors. And more often than not, there have been times where I'm upstairs doing something and suddenly Brinley appears beside me. And I'm like, how did you get in here? Like, I know I put you outside. And so one of us will look at the other and be like, somebody go check the doors downstairs. Somebody left it unlocked, he figured it out and he opened the door. This didn't happen here. They knew that the doors were locked. It was the best I thought of. I kept thinking of Brinley showing up in my living room when I was reading this. <sighs> I love that dog. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. <laughs> Wait, the door's locked and you're here. Poof. I wonder if he had a little bit of fun with this at times or if it was super serious. I mean, I just want to know so bad because... I have a feeling I'd ruin the atmosphere at the time. Like, you're here. Um, I don't know what it would be like. Maybe tears, like, oh, you're here. I don't know. Peace be with you. And then as he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad. And they said to the Lord, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. And the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. One of the things I love again and again throughout scripture is how many times it says peace or do not be afraid. That's a great study all on its own. Peace be with you. So then what does he do after this? He had already told them, it's better that I go. And they're like, no, I don't understand it. And then they think they've just gotten him back. And then he said to them this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Oh. I mean, it goes from being like, receive the Holy Spirit to, whoa, that's heavy. I'm not going to get into all that right now, but I will tell you that I firmly believe that we are called, that we are called, that we are called before we participate to forgive. And it's not always a feeling. Sometimes it's an act of the will that in the best that I can at this moment, Father, I choose to forgive. I choose to release this person from my unforgiveness. I choose to walk in standing with you in your calling of me. I choose to stand differently and live differently because I believe that you're looking for a resting place. And I'd rather lay myself down to be that resting place 
than to be the lonely right person on the top of a mountain. Acts 1, 4 to 5. And while he was staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's a little confusing. Didn't he just breathe on them? Didn't he just say, here's the Holy Spirit? But he told him to wait. Wait. So they had been baptized in the Holy Spirit. They had the promise of a deeper baptism. Something else was coming. Something that would change going from a fear-based, all the doors have to be locked, to wildly running to the ends of their lives. We, we have to teach our children. We have to look at each other and say, yeah, guys, come on up, that this is where we're running to. This, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> we are going. We are to be pulled back like an arrow and shot forward. And it will not be easy. It won't be. The world's not going to like us. Sometimes our family won't like us. A lot of times our friends may not like us. There is something to be said here where we are having to die, but we do not have a savior that did not die in front of us for us first. We don't have a set of disciples that didn't say, I'm fearful, I'm locking the doors, I'm staying in. I don't know about you, but there have been times where I just wanted to lock the doors and hide. And he says, there will be a power that can come that you will boldly step out and then you will boldly die for what you're talking about. I mean, it's a shift. There's just a shift that has to happen. And I believe that the Lord is speaking to his people on earth now in a different way at a different time. Look for me, wait for me, hunger after me. If you're not hungry now, ask for more hunger. If you don't think it's important, then off the cuff say, Lord, I don't really think it's important, but can you make me want to think it's important? Can you think, make me want to want you? Take a step in his direction because this is the foundation that our world is based upon. Not the idea that I get to be right on my mountaintop. Not the idea that I get to just always have justice for myself. We fight for others' justice. But it's pointless if there's not something behind it. It's pointless if there's not a power behind it. It's pointless if there's not the Godhead, the Holy Spirit speaking into each one of us. And we're going to be talking more about that in the next couple weeks. But I've, I've been weighty this week. That sometimes we have been given a gospel that stops short. That Jesus is not enough. He's not. He, he looked at his people and said, it's good that I don't stay. It's for your best that I don't stay. 
that in his fulfilling his part, he passed it off so the Holy Spirit could then do his. That we have to have both the cross and we have to have Pentecost. And in there, we have to be hungry. E. Stanley Jones, which is another guy I love, says this quote, unless the Holy Spirit fills, the human spirit fails. Unless the Holy Spirit fills, the human spirit fails. So what did Jesus pray for? What does he tell us to pray for? To glorify the Lord. Unity. Unity. The Holy Spirit. Co-laborers in Christ, side by side. I think of the geese flying and how as they create their V, there's the person, the, the goose that's flying in the front and it's having to cut through the wind. It's the most exhausting place to be. And as it gets tired, it allows itself to relax some and the current from pushing all of them sweeps it backwards and pops it up on the backside. And it's basically able for a period of time to rest in the current of the other geese pulling it forward. We are meant to be in community together, physically present together. I believe that just as the, the temple pointed towards Jesus, and it was the, the place for the sacrifice, for the sacrament, for the teaching, and as that, that has now been in, willing to be indwelled in each of us. We are the temple, but we are also the church, the body of Christ coming together. And I believe that it's incredibly important for our body to come together, to encourage, to spend time together, to see each other. Brad shared this story a while ago, and I can't get out of my head. I've had a few other people mention it recently. Of, of if you just close your eyes and imagine a fireplace with the embers and the coals, and it's glowing and it's hot and it's perfect for putting a baked potato in there or popping popcorn or melting a marshmallow, whatever you want to do on a winter evening at this fireplace. But then you take the tongs and you reach in and you take one of those hot coals that are it's just burning red and you set it over on the edge of the hearth and then just watch what happens over time. that starts to die off over here. The fire starts to dim. The heat starts to leave. The coldness of the environment around it sucks the heat out of that little coal. We are not meant to be alone, but we are meant to have the fire of the living God in us together. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And he asks for us to be willing, to be made willing to host his presence. So this week as we move on, that's my prayer and that's my question for each of us. Will you sit with me in that moment this week? Lord, make me willing to be more willing. Lord, where are the areas I don't think I hear from you? Give me eyes to see and ears to hear and just sit with me 
We could call it sitting. For many of us, it may be more of a battle. It may be a wrestle. You may get to a point at some point this week where you don't even want to think about it at all because it's just annoying you. I'm going to warn you, I'm going to be praying over your dream life too. (laughs) Because I believe that as we wrestle through some of this, the Lord will honor that and will deepen our conviction of needing him. And we'll come back next week and talk about Pentecost. We'll come back next week and talk to some of the other points of this. But we need to be a people who are willing to look for his face.